Chapter 7, Parts 12, 13, and 14 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1 by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 7, Parts 12, 13, and 14. Part 12. Religious Movements in the 6th Century. In the latter part of the 6th century, the expansion of the Persian power had suspended a stone of Tantalus over Hellas, and it seemed likely that Greek civilization might be submerged in an Oriental monarchy. We have seen how the Greek generals, Greek spearmen, and Greek seamen averted this calamity. We have now to see how another danger was averted, a danger which, though it is not like the Persian invasion, written large on the face of history, threatened Greece with a no less terrible disaster. This danger lay in the dissemination of a new religion, which, if it had gained the upper hand, as at one time it seemed likely to do, would have pressed with as dead and stifling a weight upon Greece as any Oriental superstition. Spiritually, the Greeks might have been annexed to the people of the Orient. The age of Solon witnessed not only a social and political movement among the masses in various parts of Greece, but also an intellectual and spiritual stirring. There was an intellectual dissatisfaction with the theogony of Hesiod as an explanation of the origin of the world, and the natural philosophy of Thales and his successors came into being in Ionia. But there was also a moral dissatisfaction with the tales of religious mythology as they were handed down by the epic bards, and this feeling took the form of interpreting and modifying them so as to make them conform to ethical ideals. The poet Stesichorus was a pioneer in this direction, and it was he who first imported into the legend of the house of Atreus, the murder of Agamemnon by his wife, and the murder of Clytemnestra by her son, the terrible moral significance which Aeschylus and the Attic tragedians afterwards made so familiar. Further than this, men began to feel a craving for an existence after death, and intense curiosity about the world of shades, and a desire for personal contact with the supernatural. Both the scientific and the religious movements have the same object, to solve the mystery of existence. But the religious craving demanded a short road and immediate satisfaction. The craving led to the propagation of a new religion, which began to spread about the middle of the sixth century. We know not where it originally took shape, but Attica became its most active centre, and it was propagated to western Hellas beyond the sea. Based partly on the wild Thracian worship of Dionysus, this religion was called Orphic, from Orpheus, poet and priest, who was supposed to have been born in Thrace and founded the Bacchic rites, and it exercised a deep influence over not only the people at large, but even the thinkers of Greece. The Orphic teachers elaborated a theology of their own, a special doctrine of the future world, peculiar rites and peculiar rules of conduct. But they took up into their system, so far as possible, the old popular beliefs. 
the Orphic religion might almost be described as based on three institutions, the worship of Dionysus, the mysteries connected with the gods of the underworld, and the itinerant prophets. But Dionysus, the underworld, and the art of the seer and purifier all acquired new significance in the light of the Orphic theology. It was perhaps as early as the 8th century that the worship of Dionysus was introduced into northern Greece, and various legends record the opposition which was at first offered to the reception of the stranger. His orgies spread, especially in Boeotia and Attica. The worshippers gathered at night on the mountains, by torchlight, with deerskins on their shoulders, and long ivy-wreathed wands in their hands, and danced wildly to the noise of cymbals and flutes. Men and women tore and devoured the limbs of the sacred victims. They desired to fall, and they often fell, especially the women, into a sort of frenzied ecstasy, into which their souls were thought to be in mystic communion with Dionysus. It was probably the influence of the Dionysiac worship that induced the Delphic god to give his oracles through the mouth of a woman cast into a state of divine frenzy. Men could also deal with the supernatural world through the mediation of seers. Wise men and women, called Bacchids and Sibyls, attached to no temple or sanctuary, travelled about and made their livelihood by prophesying, purifying and healing. They practised these three arts through their intimacy with the invisible world of spirits, to which the causes of disease and uncleanness were ascribed. Epimenides was one of the most famous and powerful of these wizards. We saw how he was called upon to purify Athens. Mysteries connected with the cult of the deities of the underworld supplied another means of approaching the supernatural. The Homeric bards of Ionia may have lived in a society where life yielded so many pleasures that men could look forward with equanimity and resignation to that colourless existence in the grey kingdom of Persephone which is described in the epics. But the conditions of life were very different in the mother country in the 8th century. The strife for existence was hard, and the Boeotian poet must have echoed the groans of many a wretched wight when he cried, The earth is full of ills, of ills the sea. It was a time when men were ready to entertain new views of a future world, suggesting hopes that a tolerable existence, unattainable here, might await them there. These new hopes, which begin to take shape in the course of the seventh century, were naturally connected with the religion of the deities of the underworld. In Homer we find Persephone as queen in the realm of the ghosts, but we meet there no hint of a connection between her worship and that of Demeter, the goddess of the fruits of the earth. But as the earth which yields the sustenance of men's life also receives men into her bosom when they die, Demeter and Persephone came to be associated in many local cults throughout Greece, and there grew up the legend of the rape of Persephone, which was specially developed at Eleusis, and was the subject of the Eleusinian hymn to Demeter, composed in the 7th century. At Eleusis this Chthonian cult acquired a peculiar character by the introduction of a new doctrine touching the state of souls in the life beyond the grave. In the days of Eleusinian independence, the kings themselves were the priests of the two goddesses. When Eleusis became part of the Athenian state, the Eleusinian worship was made part of the Athenian state religion. 
a temple of the two goddesses was built under the Acropolis and called the Eleusinion, and the Eleusinian Mysteries became one of the chief festivals of the Attic year conducted by the king. The Mysteries, which were probably of a very simple nature in the seventh century, were subsequently transformed under Athenian influence. Two points in this transformation are especially to be noted. The old Eleusinian king, Triptolemus, is made more prominent, and is revered as the founder of agriculture, sent abroad by Demeter herself to sow seed and instruct folk in the art. But far more important is the association of the cult of Iacus with the Eleusinian worship. Iacus was a god of the underworld, who had a shrine in Athens. In the mysteries he was born to Eleusis, and solemnly received there every year. He was originally distinct from the mystic Dionysus, with whom he was afterwards identified. The mysteries seem to have consisted of a representation in dumb show of the story of Persephone and Demeter. Mystic spells were uttered at certain moments in the spectacle, and certain sacred gear was exhibited. There was no explanation of any system of doctrine. The initiated were seers, not hearers. When the scheme of the mysteries was fully developed, the order of the festival, which took place in September, was on this wise. On the first day the cry was heard in the streets of Athens, Seaward, O Mustai, Mustai, to the sea! And the initiated went down to the shore and cleansed themselves in the sea-water. Hence the day was called Halade Mustai. The next two days were occupied with offerings and ceremonies at Athens, and on the fourth, the image of Iacus was taken forth from his shrine, and carried in solemn procession along the sacred way, over Mount Aigalius, to Eleusis. The Mustai, as they went, sang the song of Iacus, and reached the temple of the goddesses under the Eleusinian Acropolis, late at night, by the light of torches. The great day was when they assembled in the hall of initiation, and sat around on the tiers of stone seats. The Hierophant, who always belonged to the Eleusinian royal family of the Eumolpids, displayed the secret things of the worship. Beside him the torch-holder, the herald, and the priest of the altar conducted the mystic ceremonies. The mysteries are mysterious still, so far as most of the details are concerned, yet we may perhaps say that no definite dogma was taught, no systematic interpretation was laid on the legends, but the acts were calculated to arouse men's hopes, mysterious enough to impress their imaginations, and vague enough to suggest to different minds different significances. The rites gave to many an assurance of future weal, and even to harder reasoners a certain sense of possibilities in the unknown and it was believed that the Mustai had an advantage over the uninitiated, not only here but hereafter, an interest, as it were, with the powers of the other world. So it is said in the old Eleusinian hymn, Bliss hath he won, who so these things hath seen, among all men upon the earth that go, but they to whom those sights have never been unveiled have other dole of weal and woe. Even dead, shut fast within the mouldy gloom below. The Eleusinian mysteries became Panhellenic. All Greeks, not impure through any pollution, were welcome to the rites of initiation. Women were not excluded by their sex, nor slaves by their condition. 
It is probable that the development of the mysteries owed a good deal to the Pisistratids, and the ground plan of the Hall of Ceremonies, which was erected in their time, can be traced at Eleusis. Part 13. Spread of the Orphic Religion The Orphic teachers promulgated a new theory of the creation of the world, a theory which may have derived some suggestions from Babylonia. They taught that time was the original principle, that then ether and chaos came into being, that out of these two elements time formed a silver egg, from which sprang the firstborn of the gods, Phanes, god of light. The development of the world is the self-revelation of Phanes. It was necessary to bring this cosmogony into connection with Greek theology. Accordingly, Zeus swallows Phanes, and thereby becomes the original force from which the world has to be developed anew. The Thracian god Dionysus Zagreus is the son of Zeus and Persephone, and thus closely connected with the underworld. Zeus gives him the kingdom of the universe while he is still a boy, but he is pursued by the Titans, and when, after many escapes, he takes the shape of a bull, he is rent in pieces by them, but Athena saves his heart. Zeus swallows it, and afterwards brings forth the new Dionysus. The Titans, still wet with the blood of their victim, he strikes with lightning, and the race of men springs from their ashes, so that the nature of men is compact of titanic and Dionysiac elements, good and bad. The motive of the myth was to awaken in the human soul a consciousness of its divine origin, and help it on its way back to the divine state to escape from the prison or tomb of the body, to become free from the titanic elements, penalties and purifications are necessary, and the soul has to pass through a cycle of incarnations. In the intervals between these incarnations, which recur at fixed times, the soul exists in the kingdom of Hades. To attain a final deliverance, a man must live ascetically, according to rules which the Orphics prescribed, and be initiated in the orgies of Dionysus. Thus they prescribed abstinence from animal food, and imposed necessary ceremonies of purification. They taught the doctrine of judgment after death, and rewards and punishments in Hades, according to men's deeds in the body. Thus the Orphics reintroduced, as it were, into Greece, the Thracian Dionysus, who seemed almost another god when brought face to face with the Dionysus, who had been Hellenized and sobered since his admission into the society of the Greek gods of Olympus. They adopted and developed the ideas of the Eleusinian mysteries, and in a poem on the descent of Orpheus into Hades, they described the geography of the underworld. They also aspired to take the place of the old prophets and purifiers, and they sought out and collected the oracles which those prophets had disseminated. Their doctrines were published in poems which were intended to supersede the theogony of Hesiod, and the surviving fragments of these works show more poetical power than the compositions of the later successors of Homer. The Orphic religion found a welcome at Athens, and was encouraged by Pisistratus and his sons. Onomacritus, one of the most eminent Orphic teachers, reputed the author of a poem on the rites of initiation, won great credit and influence at the court of the tyrants. 
we saw how he was supposed to have taken part in preparing an edition of Homer, in which it was suspected that he and his collaborators made interpolations, and how another interpolation led to his banishment, when he was detected in making an edition of his own to a collection of ancient oracles, which were ascribed to the mythical poet Musaeus. The Orphic traditions were taken up by a man of genius, Pythagoras of Samos, who went to Italy and settled at Croton, where he was well received. His philosophy had two sides, the philosophic and the religious. He made important discoveries in mathematics and the theory of music. He recognized the spherical form of the earth, and his astronomical researches led to a considerable step, taken by his followers, in the direction of the Copernican system, the distinction of real and apparent motions. The Pythagoreans knew that the motion of the sun round the earth was only apparent, but they did not discover the revolution of the earth on its axis. They conceived a fire in the centre of the universe, round which the earth turns in twenty-four hours, the five known planets also revolving round it, and the moon and the sun, in a month and a year respectively. We never see the fire, because we live on the side of the earth which is always turned away from it, the whole world is warmed and lit from that fire, the hearth of the universe. Pythagoras sought to explain the world, spiritual and material, by numbers, and though he could plausibly defend the idea in general, its absurdity was evident when carried out in detail. His great achievement was the creation of mathematical science. At Croton he founded a religious sect or brotherhood, organized according to strict rules, the most important doctrine was the transmigration of souls, and the ascetic mode of life corresponded to that of the Orphic sects. In fact, the Pythagoreans were practically an Orphic community. Their brotherhood, which did not exclude women, obtained adherents not only in Croton, but in the neighbouring cities, and won a decisive political influence in Italian Greece. But this influence was exerted solely in the interests of oligarchy, it would seem indeed that the nobles became members of the religious organization in order to use it as an instrument of political power. It was during the ascendancy of the Pythagoreans that a war broke out between Croton and its neighbor Sybaris, which was then subject to a tyranny. The men of Croton harbored the exiles whom Telis, the despot of Sybaris, drove out and refused his demand for their surrender. Telis led forth a large host. A battle was fought, and the Sybarites were routed. Then the victors captured Sybaris, and utterly blotted it out. New cities were to arise near the place. One was for a few months to resume its name. But the old Sybaris, which had become proverbial throughout Greece for its wealth and luxury, disappeared so completely that its exact site is unknown. The destruction of the rival city was the chief exploit of the Pythagorean oligarchy of Croton, but a strong opposition arose in Croton against the government and against the Pythagorean order. Pythagoras himself found it prudent to escape from the struggle by leaving Croton, and he ended his life at Metapontion. The democratic party was led by Chilon, but the Chilonians did not get the upper hand till more than half a century had passed and the Pythagorean order flourished in Croton and the neighbouring cities. At length a sudden blow dissolved their power. One day forty brethren were assembled at Croton in the house of Mylon. 
their opponents set the building on fire, and only two escaped. It was a signal for a general persecution throughout Italy. Everywhere the members of the society were put to death or banished. At the time of the fall of the Pythagoreans, the Orphic religion was no longer a danger to Greece. It was otherwise in the lifetime of Pythagoras himself. Then it seemed as if the Orphic doctrines had been revealed as the salvation which men's minds craved. And if those doctrines had taken firm hold of Greece, all the priesthoods of the national temples would have admitted the new religion, become its ministers, and thereby exercised an enormous sacerdotal power. Nor would the Orphic teachers have failed, if there had not been a powerful antidote to counteract their mysticism. Even as it was, they exercised a permanent influence, stimulating the imaginations of poets like Aeschylus and Pindar, and diffusing a vivid picture of the world of Hades, which has affected all subsequent literature. Part 14. Ionian Reason The antidote to the Orphic religion was the philosophy of Ionia. In Asiatic Greece that religion never took root, and most fortunately the philosophical movement, the separation of science from theology, of cosmogony from theogony, had begun before the Orphic movement was disseminated. Europe is deeply indebted to Ionia for having founded philosophy, but that debt is enhanced by the fact that she thereby rescued Greece from the tyranny of a religion interpreted by priests. We have met Thales and Anaximander already. Pythagoras, although he and his followers made important advances in science, threw his weight into the scale of mysticism. Affected by both the religious and the philosophical movements, he sought to combine them, and in such unions the mystic element always wins the preponderance. But there were others who pursued undistracted the paths of reason, and among these the most eminent and influential were Xenophanes and Heraclitus. No man was more active in the cause of reason than Xenophanes of Colophon, who, after the Persian subjugation of Ionia, migrated to Elia, where he died in extreme old age. But he spent his long life in wandering about the world, and none saw and heard more of many lands and many men than he. The feeble resistance of Ionia to the invader had disgusted him with the Greeks, and produced a reaction in his mind against their religion and their ideals. His experience of many lands helped him to cast away national prejudices, and he spent his strength in warring against received opinions. In the first place he attacked the orthodox religion, and showed up the irrational side of gods made in the image of men. If oxen, or horses, or lions, he said, had hands to make images of their gods, they would fashion them in the shape of oxen, horses, and lions. In the next place he protested against the accepted teachers of the Greeks, the poets Homer and Hesiod, whom Greece regarded as inspired. All they have taught men, he said, is theft, adultery, and mutual deceit. Again he ridiculed the conventional ideas of Greek life the ideal, for instance, of the athlete. He deprecated the folly which showed great honours to a victor in a race or a contest. Our wisdom is better than the strength of human animals and horses. He carried about and spread his revolutionary ideas from city to city in the guise of a musician, attended by a slave with a cithern. 
But he was not merely destructive. He had something to put in the place of the beliefs which he overthrew. He constructed a philosophy of which the first principle was God, not like mortals in either form or mind, which he identified with the whole cosmos, and which was thus material, existing in space, and not excluding the existence of particular subordinate gods animating nature. He was also distinguished as a geologist. He drew conclusions from fossils as to the past history of the earth. As a fearless thinker, seeking to break through national prejudices, he is one of the most attractive of the pioneers of Greek thought. But what especially concerns us here is that Xenophanes rejected Orpheus as utterly as he rejected Hesiod. He would have nothing to do with mysticism and divine revelation. He regarded the Orphic priests as impostors, and he inveighed strongly against Pythagoras. We can hardly overvalue his services in thus actively fighting the battle of reason, and diffusing ideas which counteracted not only the comparatively harmless superstitions of the vulgar, but also the more serious and subtle danger of the Orphic religion. Long before he died, Greek philosophy had become a living power, which no religion would stifle, a waxing force which would hinder sacerdotalism from ever turning back the stream of progress. The rationalism of Xenophanes affected Heraclitus of Ephesus, a man of very different temper. Heraclitus heartily despised the vulgar. He was an aristocrat in politics, and he wrote in a hard style for the few. In old age he retreated to the woods to end his life, having deposited the book of his philosophy in the temple of Artemis. A man of greater genius than any of the Ionian philosophers who preceded him, he thought out the doctrine of the flux, which exercised an immense influence on his successors. This principle was the constant change in all things. Existence is change. We are and we are not. But the process of change observes a certain law. Nature has her measures, and thus, while he had developed the doctrine of relativity, good and bad, he said, are the same, he had a basis for ethics. His influence was both subversive and conservative, according as one took hold of the doctrine of the flux, or the fixed law of the world. The pantheistic principle of Xenophanes was taken up at Elia by Parmenides, who gave it a new metaphysical meaning. He assumed an eternal unchanging being, and treated it with the scientific method which he learnt from the Pythagoreans. One of the most important services of Parmenides and his followers was their argument that sense is deceptive and leads us into self-contradiction. Here, they said, was the capital error of Heraclitus, who founded his system on the senses. With Parmenides and Heraclitus, philosophy, in the strict sense, metaphysics as we call it, was fully founded. We have not to pursue the development here, but we have to realise that the establishment of the study of philosophy was one of the most momentous facts in the history of the Greeks. It meant the triumph of reason over mystery. It led to the discrediting of the Orphic movement. It ensured the free political and social progress of Hellas. A danger averted without noise or bloodshed, not at a single crisis, 
but in the course of many years, is a danger which soon ceases to be realised, and it is perhaps hard to imagine that in the days of Pisistratus the religion which was then moving Greece, and especially Attica, bid fair to gain a dominant influence and secure a fatal power for the priests. The Delphic priesthood had, doubtless, an instinct that the propagation of the Orphic doctrines might ultimately redound to its own advantage. Although the new religion had arisen when the aristocracies were passing away and had addressed itself to the masses, it is certain that if it had gained the upper hand, it would have lent itself to the support of aristocracy and tyranny. The tyrants of Athens might have made an Orphic priesthood a useful instrument of terror, and the brotherhood of Pythagoras was an unmistakable lesson to Greece what the predominance of a religious order was likely to mean. We may say with propriety that a great peril was averted from Greece by the healthful influence of the immortal thinkers of Ionia. But this, after all, is only a superficial way of putting the fact. If we look deeper, we see that the victory of philosophy over the doctrines of priests was simply the expression of the Greek spirit, which inevitably sought its highest satisfaction in the full expansion of its own powers in the free light of reason. The sixth century, the most critical period in the mental development of the Greeks, came to be known afterwards as the age of the seven sages. The national instinct for shaping legends chose out a number of men who had made some impression by their justice and prudence, and, regardless of dates, invented an ideal community among them, as if they had formed a sort of college, and brought them into connection with great people like Lydian kings. Periander, the tyrant of Corinth, was curiously added to the list, which included Solon and Thales. To them were attributed wise maxims like, Know thyself, avoid excess, and it is hard to be virtuous. The spirit which the legend describes to these sages, and which the lives of Solon and Pittacus displayed, reflects the wisdom which sought to solve, or rather to evade, the everlasting problems of the discrepancy between man's ideal of justice and the actual ordering of the world by enjoining a life of moderation. But it is not without significance that when the Orphic agitation had abated, Greece should have enshrined the worldly wisdom of men who stood wholly aloof from mystic excitements and sought for no revelation in the fiction of the Seven Sages. End of Part 14 End of Chapter 7